Today on the podcast, we're discussing Dupuytren's contracture. Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins, and welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode 147. And for today's episode, we're discussing a pretty common presentation that I've been seeing more of over the years in my clinical practice. And so I thought it would be interesting to deep dive into this topic a little bit more talk about what it is, what are the most commonly accepted medical treatments, and then how we might view this as therapists, mainly because I think there are some things that we we may be doing that may be a disservice to the people that we see right now as it pertains to this. And so maybe through understanding the mechanism by which this condition or disease presents itself and what's going on we might be better able to serve the people that we see moving forward. The name of this condition or or disease, because essentially that's what it is, is Dupuytren's disease. And as a result of that, contractures form. And what essentially a contracture is, is an accumulation of non-contractile tissue in an area of the body that prevents motion. And we see contractures from a variety of things. We can see contractures or cords that develop post-breast cancer surgery. We can see cords and and contractures that develop post any type of surgery where there's an incision. We've taken this contracture, or rather, sorry, this disease, and we've referred to it by its presentation. And this is called Dupuytren's contracture. So we'll first start off by saying it is a disease and often as therapists, we're referring to the contracture portion of the disease, the sort of physical presentation. Dupuytren's disease, it's an inherited genetic disease. It's considered for the most part to be benign, minus some of the things that we'll talk about throughout the episode with respect to activities of daily living and being frustrating for the people that have it. But what this is, is it's a chronic fibroproliferative disorder of the palm, the digits, sometimes the foot, and the adjacent soft tissue that surrounds these areas. This is was discovered long ago in the 1600s and more popularly coined by the French surgeon Dr. Guillaume de Puytren in the 1800s. The first thing about this disease is it's genetic and what it's causing is proliferation of fibroblasts. Fibroblasts produce collagen and within the body we've got a whole bunch of collagen. Collagen serves a really great purpose but sometimes when we have too much of it, it can create stiffness in areas that we otherwise wouldn't want stiffness. This, especially in the the way that this presents, can form nodules or little balls or cords, which are long, thin collagen strands that can act as 
space-occupying lesions, and they end up restricting range of motion. So when we look at the contracture portion of Dupuytren's disease, it's defined as fixed flexion. So if you look at your hand, flexion is up towards your palm. Fixed flexion or fixed flexion contracture of the metacarpal phalangeal joint or the proximal interphalangeal joint, also known as the PIP. And typically this contraction officially gets diagnosed as such when it reaches 20 degrees or greater in a non-thumb finger. So if digits two through five, index finger through to baby finger. The metacarpal phalangeal joints, for those that aren't familiar, are, is the large knuckle row in your hand. So when you flex your fingers and you see those big knuckles, that's the metacarpal phalangeal joint. And then the line in your fingers just above that is your pip joint or the proximal interphalangeal joint which is a joint that's formed by your, your proximal or the, the phalanx that's closer to the base of your hand and then the middle phalanx, the one that's just above or a little bit further away from the hand than that. And so this is where this contracture in the majority of people starts to form. Uh, again, it is usually benign. It will typically start a little bit lower than these joints in the, the palm. So you'll start to see basically around the ring finger and baby finger, a contracture forming in the soft tissue of the palm. And then it will work its way up towards that metacarpal phalangeal joint and proximal interphalangeal joint. It's usually present in one hand. And the fifth finger seems to be the most affected in roughly about half of the cases. And so what's happening here is the body is producing collagen. It's producing more collagen than is required. And it's producing it in the form of nodules or little balls or cords, longer, thicker strands. And it's doing this in the fibril fatty layer of the palm, the layer just below the skin between the fat, the subcutaneous fat, and the fascia or the connective tissue. This is the most common presentation in the vast majority of Dupuytren's contracture cases. However, there can be nodules that form elsewhere. So... The terminal knuckles, so the, the knuckles that are in the fingers, not in the palm, there are nodules that can form on the back of those knuckles or on the back side of your hand, known as the, the area is known as the knuckle pad, as well as there can be benign nodules that form on the sole of the foot. So these can present like little balls or, or nodules within the underside of the foot and can create, you know, maybe a sense of pain and discomfort when walking on them also. The prevalence of this disease is quite far spread in the research. In Western countries, depending upon the research that you read, it says 0.6 to 32% and 8% of the worldwide population. And the vast majority of people that this presents in is it's more common in white males and more common in people in general of Northern European descent. There are some thought to be increased risk factors for developing an expression of Dupuytren's disease in the form of contracture, because remember, there is a, a strong genetic component, and this is why it is more prevalent in Northern European or, or people of Northern European descent because of how it was passed down from Vikings in Northern Europe way back when, and then has continued to work its way through the, the genetic tree of people of those origins. 
but some additional risk factors that may lead to the expression of this disease are things like smoking, alcohol consumption, regulation or misregulation of fats in the body, so cholesterol and fat, diabetes, epilepsy, the use of some drugs are thought to increase this expression, particularly anticonvulsants and antiretroviral drugs, so drugs that are used for viruses to help combat viruses. And then there's also some thought about, you know, hand trauma. So did somebody have a hand injury or repetitive hand injury due to activities of daily living that may cause it to become more uh, expressive? So these are some of the things that we think might increase risk of development and increase risk of expression. So in these cases, these individuals start again with getting some symptoms in the hand on the palmar side, and it's usually in the soft tissue of usually in between that ring finger, baby finger, and then those contractions and nodules start to create contraction or drawing of the finger in towards the palm through the, the metacarpal phalangeal joint or that first knuckle, and then ultimately the second knuckle. Now, when we talk about once someone has developed it, and we'll talk about the various treatments that are currently available from a medical perspective, there's always discussion when someone goes in for treatment, what is the recurrence of this going to be? Meaning, if I get this treated the first time, how likely is it going to recur in whatever time frame, six months, one year, two years, five years? And there seems to be some discussion around what may lead to more recurrence in the research that I think is, is worth looking at. The first set of risk factors are things like if you're getting symptoms in the hand and you also have fibromas in the foot, it may lead to greater recurrence. If you have some of those knuckle pad, what are called Gerard nodules, you may have increased risk of recurrence. If you have nodules on the radial side of your finger, so the radial side of your finger, if you're looking at your hand, is the side that's closer to the thumb, you may have increased risk of recurrence. If you have or get the presentation of the disease and contracture in the hand below the age of 50, and then males have a greater recurrence than females. This is recurrence following surgery. The thing about recurrence in the research is recurrence is really poorly defined. It's poorly agreed upon. It's also procedure dependent, and we'll talk about the varying procedures that help with this condition. The other difficulty in the research is what are you measuring, how are you measuring it, and how are you describing it is often inconsistent. So what might recurrence actually mean? Does this mean that the finger partially contracts? Does it have to contract beyond a certain range or degrees? Does it have to create disability in activities of daily living? It appears like most of the studies look at two primary measures for measurement of recurrence, and that is active and passive range of motion of the digit that is affected. So active range of motion is my ability to move my own hand and fingers, and passive range of motion is the ability of someone else to move my hand and fingers independent of me doing it. There are some 
research studies that look at recurrence as greater than 20 degrees of contracture one year post-treatment compared with what it was six weeks after treatment. So they look at two measures, six weeks post-surgery, then a year follow-up. And if that finger has contracted back greater than 20 degrees, that would be considered to be having a recurrence. Now, rates of recurrence, they can vary quite a bit. Certain studies look at rates or have cited rates of recurrence as anywhere from 12 to 60%. And when we look at those individuals that recur often, in some of the literature, it says that the mean average of the, the digit, so how contracted the digit was in, in a lot of these recurrences was about 50 degrees. So it seems like if the, the finger is contracted to 50 degrees, there may be a higher rate of recurrence. It also seems like if there are multiple digits that are affected, so say the ring finger and the middle finger and the baby finger, as well as older age, there's a higher rate of recurrence. There are three primary accepted medical treatments for Dupuytren's contracture. I'll take you through each one of them individually and give you a little bit of a description of each, and then I'll talk about the recurrence rate specific to each individual treatment intervention. The three most common accepted treatments are surgery, also known as an open partial fasciotomy. Fasciotomy means sort of sloughing away or cutting away of the fascial tissue, and we've got fascia everywhere in our body. Fascial tissue or an example of it may be the gray grisly stuff that you see on the remnants of steak or, or chicken at times, and we have that throughout our body as well. It wraps around all of our organs, all of our muscles, etc. The second treatment option is something known as a CCH injection or a collagenase clostridium histolyticum injection. And then lastly, there's something known as a needle aponeurotomy or percutaneous needle fasciotomy. And so we'll talk about those three as the three primary treatment interventions for Dupuytren's contracture. Let's start with this open partial fasciotomy, which is the most common. And I would say that it is the current most accepted standard for treatment. Now, this is surgery. So it's surgery on the hand, most often performed by a plastic surgeon. And the first thing about surgery is that no surgery is risk-free. There's always risks and potential side effects that fall outside of the norm when you're getting a surgery. And the other thing about surgery is it is longer to recover. Why surgery is the most kind of accepted standard for Dupuytren's contracture is that it offers, first of all, better visualization of the injury. So you're opening up the hand, you can see where the nodules are or the cords are that are preventing range of motion and causing the flexion contracture of the digit. And then you can remove those, relocate the digit to its resting normal position, and then close the surgery. Now, the downside to the fasciotomy is that it requires a lot of post-operative rehabilitation. And one of the post-surgical complications following fasciotomy is that the scar, the superficial scar and the deep scar from the surgery, 
may cause a contracture in and of itself, and this is a commonly recognized post-surgical complication. This can also cause, you know, things like around each joint in the body, we have a joint capsule, kind of like a saran wrap, or I liken it to a saran wrap bag around, you know, two bones that are joining. And that can also tighten up post-surgery and, and continue to restrict motion. So while you may have had the nodules and the cords that are restricting your range of motion pre-surgery, you may now have some other things post-surgery, even though those nodules and cords have been removed or cut, that are continuing to cause you trouble. As I mentioned earlier, recurrence can be a thing. The worse, seemingly, as I mentioned earlier, that that initial contraction is, the potential for recurrence seems to be a little bit higher. With respect to the superficial scar, again, what I had mentioned at the top of the show was this is a a genetic disorder that causes fibroblasts or collagen-producing cells in the body to basically overproduce collagen. So the likelihood of, or the the discussion around a post-surgical scar contracture isn't really a surprise because we have an individual that genetically in a way already is more predisposed to the laying down of collagen. And so when you have any scar in the body, I wonder that although Dupuytren's contracture is relatively regional to the hand, if there may be a likelihood to maybe lay down a little bit more collagen elsewhere in the body as well. So while it is the most accepted intervention, we're dealing with a lot of post-surgical rehabilitation, which we'll talk about in a moment, and the potential for the scar of the surgery to create a similar type of contracture and then a similar type of presentation. So that's number one. Number two is this CCH injection. It's becoming more popular due to the fact that it's a little bit less invasive. Uh, and again, uh, collagenase clostridium histolyticum is a, is a bacteria. And what ends up happening is this bacteria is injected into the nodules and or the cords. So on day one, you go in, you get the injection into where these nodules have formed or where these cords have formed. And then the next day you go in and you basically go through what's, a, what's called a force passive manipulation, meaning they take the finger and they force it from its flex position back to its neutral position. And in doing so, they disrupt the nodules and the cords. So they, they break them or they basically tear them, allowing the finger to come back to its resting position. The thought around this procedure is that, number one, it's, it's less invasive, so there are fewer post-surgical complications. Um, but we'll talk about you know, whether recurrence rates are, are better in CCH injection versus surgery or not in a moment. Now, the last intervention that is the most acceptable is quite similar to the CCH injection. Again, this needle apneurotomy or percutaneous needle fasciotomy. What happens is they take a needle and they prick small holes in either the cord or the nodules. So to kind of start to, you know, break them up with a needle. And then they do a forced passive manipulation. This is typically done in a single session, so they're not waiting a day to do it. And again, it's a similar thought process as in it's less invasive, therefore there's less post-surgical 
complications. Ultimately, with these three different procedures, we also want to bear in mind, well, what are the recurrence rates of each? So what is the likelihood that this will come back? Because while some things are less invasive, if it's going to continue to return, then people are going to want to be able to make educated decisions on what might be the best intervention for them. This is going to be dependent upon the research that you read and the particular studies that you're looking at. But here's some statistics that I found. So first, we'll talk about two-year recurrence rates. So the needle apneurotomy recurrence rate is 24%. The CCH injection is 41%. And the open partial fasciotomy is 4%. The two-year recurrence rate of the surgery is 4%, probably why it's the acceptable most current standard treatment because its recurrence rate is, you know, 10 times less than the CCH injection and six times less than the needle apneurotomy. Now, if we look at five-year recurrence rates of first needle apneurotomy, 61%, CCH injection, 55%, and partial fasciotomy, still 4%. So when we draw out to five years, the partial fasciotomy has even better recurrence rate statistics than the other two. And so while the first two are substantially less invasive, there may be, you know, some discussion with, you know, patient and surgeon, plastic surgeon about these recurrence rates and allow individuals to make their own decision based on their activities of daily living, what are the requirements for from their hand moving forward. I think a lot of the time we take for granted how much we're using the hand throughout the day, but I'm sure if you yourself have injured your hand like a finger or a thumb, sprained something, jammed something, cut something, you realize that when you don't have that, how integral the hands are in, in our everyday life. There are people that, if this continues to recur, have considered or will get a either partial or a full amputation of the digit because they feel as though it's creating that much disability in their activities of daily living because they can't really use the digit and it's just sort of sitting in the middle of the palm as it's flexed towards it. So certainly for some people, it becomes very problematic in their activities of daily living. So those are the three most acceptable treatments. Um, What we're going to do now is just talk a little bit about some adjuncts to treatment and therapy following the partial open fasciotomy because it is the most commonly acceptable treatment. And one thing that seems to be pretty consistent in the research is that following treatment, we want to have some type of prolonged low load force on the digit or the, the finger following surgery frequently throughout the day. Meaning we want to try and get that digit back to its normal resting position, pre-surgical resting position, over time with low load force. And I think that low load force is often advocated for because if we're using really aggressive force over, say, many times throughout the day, we know this person has the likelihood, particularly in the hand, to proliferate collagen and scarring. 
And so if we're not using low, low progressive force, particularly in that acute phase, as well as as the, the tissue in the hands going through its scar maturation, which can be anywhere from sort of three to six months, we might be getting over proliferation and we may be running into a circumstance where that scar, the surgical scar becomes thickened and continues to restrict range of motion. For this reason, post-operative splinting is usually recommended. However, the evidence is really unclear about its benefit. There are a few different reasons why surgeons and therapists will suggest this. It can be both effective in chronic cases. Chronic cases are, you know, in some of the research I've read, are more than six months. Acute cases, 21 days to six months. But what the splinting does, and it's usually typically a rigid splint, you can get it from any type of pharmacy, and it just goes over the, the finger, basically, and you can use it for a variety of injuries to the finger. But this provides a low load force to the scar tissue as it remodels and matures in that first three to six months post-surgery. Now, splinting doesn't come as a completely benign intervention. Sometimes you get pain and stiffness with it. You get swelling and redness with it, which can be uncomfortable. And so you want to try to get a minimal effective dose of splinting because if you are using it too much, you can get over proliferation of scarring, as I mentioned, which can be counterproductive to the healing process. So post-operative splinting is usually a, a really common method to try and get that digit back to its resting position along with some other interventions that we'll talk about as well. Now, splinting is also in the discussion of prevention. So prevention is I have the presentation of Dupuytren's contracture, and I want to try to prevent it from getting worse. You know, maybe I've got 10 degrees, and I'm still relatively functional with 10 degrees, and I'm trying to either stave off surgery for as long as possible or stave off surgery permanently. There are several, again, interventions regarding prevention they are very poorly studied in the research and the quality of the evidence that's available is quite low. So I wouldn't say there's a truly accepted method of prevention in terms of preventing the progression of Dupuytren's contracture. But some of the things that are used are splinting again, particularly night splinting to try and prevent the digit from contracting. There's things like oral steroids, steroid injections, and then physical therapy, massage therapy, your sort of paramedical interventions. Now, again, there can't, there really isn't one that's preferred over the other. And to be honest, due to the lack of evidence, it's not something that we can really say, you know, physical therapy will definitely prevent a progression of the contracture or not. Um, if I could just lend some of my own perspective on this now, um, having kind of introduced, you know, most acceptable treatment standards and how I see this. First off, I think the likelihood of an invasive procedure here is quite high, meaning any of the three that we discussed. Um, this is, again, a, a genetic-based over-proliferation of scarring. When I think about this, and I have people in the clinic that come in with this, I think about it in, in two lights, prevention and then post-surgically. And in the back of my head, I have this thought that the likelihood that the person's going to end up getting it surgically repaired at some point 
is going to be high. This may be immediately, we may be able to prevent the surgery for a few years or a few months. Again, it's going to be very hard to say whether the interventions that we provide to the person are actually preventing it because we can't run the experiment side by side. This will be an an all or none thing. The person will either end up getting surgery or not. We don't know if those prevention strategies are the true reason as to why. So when I'm using prevention strategies and I'm educating the person that I'm seeing, I want to do things ultimately that they are on board for doing that cause you know, very minimal side effects and allow them to continue to do the things that they love. Those are kind of my criteria. I also want to provide pretty low cost interventions um, because at times there are going to be individuals that simply can't afford to come and see me due to, you know, disposable income or they're not, them not having benefits. So if I can provide prevention strategies that they can do at home and always check in on me as needed, or check in with me rather as needed through email or something, then I prefer that. So prevention strategies that I've suggested in the past are splinting, as I alluded to. Treatment and guidance. Um, This can be treatment in the clinic if they can afford it, or it can be kind of ongoing sessions of treatment with, again, some education on how to do some exercises to try and maintain range of motion um, at home as well as do self-treatment. So what are some of the things that I'll suggest for self-treatment? The first thing that I will not suggest, and this is a really common treatment intervention for Dupuytren's contracture, is frictioning. The way that I see this is we have a genetic condition where the person's fibroblasts have a tendency to over-proliferate. And we know that one of the side effects of surgery is this scar tacking down when forces through the tissue are too much. And so if I'm going in and really aggressively manipulating those nodules or those cords, I can have all the best intentions in the world that I'm quote unquote going to break up that scar tissue. We know that that has been refuted over and over in the research. So that's not really something that's happening anymore. If my thought process was I'm going to go in and break this up, I know that that isn't a thing. But what can be a thing is I can cause a lot of irritation. I can cause a lot of pain. I may, in fact, create a signal that causes over-proliferation. Now, I don't know that for certain, but the byproduct could be negative with the other side effect of, you know, my intent of being positive I know isn't already going to happen. So frictions are out for me. What I will do is I'll encourage the person to manipulate the kind of tissue of the palm You know, superficially, I'll say, pick up the skin of your palm and twist it. Um, Maybe take the blunt end of a spoon and stick it into your palm gently and twist it around. Stretch the tissue through that manipulation in all sorts of different directions. You know, side to side, up and down, twisting to create different vectors through the tissue. I might suggest that they use some heat or something to just relax the area of the hand and make it feel a little bit more comfortable and then following those applications of heat and again that's just to try and increase some comfort taking the digit through some range of motion on their own i'll teach them how to passively extend the digit that's affected i'll then have them turn the palm down on the 
on a table, let's say, with a, a towel underneath it, and then load the back of that digit downward gently, repeatedly to kind of stretch the front end of the finger. I also want to encourage that in some of the exercises that I will give them at home if they're willing to embark on, you know, more structured exercise. And I think these exercises are no different whether this is a, to try and prevent progression or really in, in a post-surgical case as well. Let's just talk about post-surgically if there's really any difference for me in terms of prevention, um, and then I'll go through some of the, the exercises that are non-specific to the hand that I might encourage people to do um, as well. So post-surgically, I think splinting is an acceptable intervention. Again, its true effect is, is not quite understood. After the surgery, you're going to have this quite noticeable scar on the palm and maybe in through the fingers, depending upon where those nodules are. And it can look quite unsightly initially. However, over time, that scar will um, reduce quite substantially. Now, there is some discussion and research around just manipulating scars post-surgery, particularly in the burn community, and that it leads to a more comfortable scar, a less unsightly scar in some cases. But again, it's really hard to track because it's not some something that I can manipulate the scar on my hand and not manipulate the scar on my hand and see how those two things pan out. So typically, I like to encourage scar manipulation around 10 days to two weeks post-surgery, assuming that the scar has closed, it's not infected, it doesn't look as though it's trending towards infection, um, and it's not emitting any exudate, meaning it's not bleeding, there isn't any pus. Some clear fluid from the scar may be okay, but that's generally the time frame. So again, two weeks is a general time frame. Um, in, in other individuals, it might be a little bit less than that. In other individuals, it might be a little bit longer than that. And this manipulation is, again, in a similar fashion to what we used in, as a preventative strategy, twisting, bending, and manipulating that tissue somewhat regularly throughout the day. No frictions are suggested. And then following this, some passive range of motion, either unloaded with you know, the person kind of passively extending their affected finger or fingers with the palm up, and then in a loaded position with the palm down and them gently pushing on the back of their hand to create some extension through the fingers. Now, some of these other exercises that I might suggest that people are doing in the case of prevention or even post-surgically, and again, you modify accordingly, are things where the hand, the palm is down and loaded because that pushes the fingers into extension. That is ultimately our goal to either prevent surgery or prevent two-year and five-year recurrence. Something like a push-up or a modified push-up where the palm is down and you're pushing the flat of the hand into something. Could be a modified push-up against a wall. Could be a push-up on the floor. It could be a, a kneeling push-up. The four-point position is another great position. So this is the hands and knees position. Some really common exercises that are here are rocking back and forth, cat-cow exercise, or uh, a bird-dog exercise. 
things like the Turkish getup or a modified Turkish getup or a partial Turkish getup where you're having to plant your elbow and then plant the palm of your hand on the floor and develop some force through that. All of these exercises are very reasonable in their prescription and try to get that palm of the hand flat on the floor with a little bit of load through it. Again, do I have any proof that this prevents surgery? No, but from a practical and theoretical perspective, seems reasonable. Again, I'm taking into account, does this cause increased pain? Does it cause other symptoms or struggles that the individual wasn't dealing with prior to the introduction of these exercises? But if it does not, I will continue to provide these exercises along with some of the more joint-specific ones in the hand in an attempt to either prevent surgery or prevent recurrence. And in most cases, in my experience, people have done reasonably well with this type of strategy. I haven't had anyone go in for a uh, recurrent surgery yet, but again, this isn't, I'm not treating Dupuytren's contracture all day, every day. I'm seeing, you know, a few over the course of several years. But I do think the biggest takeaway from a therapy perspective for those therapists that are listening is this idea of frictions and and frictions are often commonly talked about with respect to this particular presentation that you friction and you break down the nodules and we just know that that's not a thing. And so a lot of the time we just might be either doing nothing or causing some flare-up or aggravation of symptoms, or maybe even in some cases over further over proliferation of scarring um, and fibroblastic activity, which is not going to be doing the individual any favors either. So that kind of wraps up Dupuytren's contracture. It's an interesting one because it really is a benign disease outside of the annoyance of the fact that one or more of the fingers is flexing and there's not you know seemingly a whole lot that can be done about about the actual flexion contracture outside of trying to prevent things the best way possible again ultimately the recognition that a lot of these do end up with some type of medical procedure at some point i'd love to know in the comments um, if you have had Dupuytren's contracture and what you've found to help you, or if you're treating a lot of this, what are some of the things that you've done in your clinic to help the people that you see? Um, Your comments are always welcome. I think we'll wrap it up there today. Um, As always, your support for the podcast is appreciated. I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we will see you in the next one.